the Hamlet podcast, episode 10. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. Last week, we met Lady Macbeth, reading a message from her husband and then imagining some very shocking possibilities, if her husband is brave enough to take them on. Again, we're hearing a character wonder if fate alone will be enough. She's already convinced that fate and metaphysical aid will crown Macbeth, but the lady is clearly intent on joining in to help make things happen. As she thinks about this, a servant enters. Lady Macbeth asks, What is your tidings? The response is a shock. The king comes here tonight. Here we can have a little ambiguity. Obviously, we in the audience know that it's Duncan and his retinue on their way for a royal visit. But Lady Macbeth has just been fantasising about her husband being king. And so perhaps it's a jolt when this servant tells her that the king is coming home tonight. If Macbeth has been made king as easily as he became Glam's and Cawdor, well then, the play is over. And good night. So Lady Macbeth rightly replies... Thou art mad to say it. It's quite a dramatic thing to interrupt a soliloquy when the character is wrapped up in such deep concerns. Naturally, she needs a moment to get back in the room, but Lady Macbeth is nothing if not quick-witted, so she doesn't take too long, and continues, Is not thy master with him, who, were it so, would have informed for preparation? Obviously, she's wondering, is Macbeth coming with the king? And if he is, why hasn't he sent advance warning, so that they in the castle can be prepared to greet and welcome their royal guest? The messenger replies in turn, So please you, it is true, our thane is coming. One of my fellows had the speed of him, who, almost dead for breath, had scarcely more than would make up his message. The servant is saying, Yes, Macbeth really is coming, Another servant did indeed rush ahead of him to bring the word. He was almost dead when he arrived, another valiant messenger in this play, and he had hardly enough breath left in him to deliver the news. But he did, and Lady Macbeth assures that he will be looked after. She says, give him tending, he brings great news. So the messenger now exits, and Lady Macbeth returns to her thoughts. The raven himself is horse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here, and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Come to my woman's breasts, and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Come, thick night, and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, Hold! Hold! This is one of the most famous speeches in the play, Lady Macbeth essentially committing herself to evil and sacrificing everything she has for the sake of what she wants. 
There is a fabulous book called The Ornithology of Shakespeare from the 1870s, which you can find online, that lists and explains just about every reference Shakespeare ever made to ravens. They're very troublesome birds and very worrying. They feed on corpses and they are an ill omen. If you see a raven in Shakespeare, it's never with good news. Lady Macbeth here suggests that, like the exhausted messenger, even the raven would be hoarse or breathless, announcing the fatal entrance of Duncan into her castle, under her battlements. Duncan will not leave this place alive. When we were first with the three witches, there was much to discuss about numbers. Things, like the witches themselves, came in threes, or the seven nights and even nine times nine, which is an awful lot of threes itself. Here Lady Macbeth echoes this. Across this soliloquy she makes three exhortations, each clearly beginning with the word come. Come, you spirits, come to my woman's breasts, come thick night. Three is the magic number, and she's not taking any chances. The first of these is probably the most famous line she has. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here. She's calling on the kind of supernatural agents that will pay attention to humans, mortals, and maybe get involved. Shakespeare made up the word unsex, and it suggests a negation, an undoing of her femininity. Already we've marked out quite a few instances of masculinity, hyper-masculinity even, and then Lady Macbeth contrasted these with how her husband is too full of the milk of human kindness. Now she's praying that she may have all feminine traits taken away. Unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Her husband is introduced as being capable of emptying a man, slitting him open from the knave to the chaps, and now by contrast his wife wants to be filled from the crown to the toe with cruelty. She prays that her blood will be made thick. There was a long-standing medical assumption that emotions and human feelings were governed and transmitted by different bodily fluids, blood chief among them. She wants her blood, and therefore her feelings, to flow less easily. Any feminine feelings are of no use to her and will only get in her way. She also wants her menstrual blood to stop flowing. A very clear early euphemism appears when she hopes that no compunctious visitings of nature shake her from her fell purpose. It's possible that the image of making thick is to stop a very specific flow of blood, and certainly her rejection of motherhood is part of the plan. Her line, stop up the access and passage to remorse, also echoes a segment of Henry VI, part three, when Clifford says, in vain thou speakst, poor boy. My father's blood hath stopped the passage where thy words should enter. This is quite a strong echo, thickened or dried blood preventing access, preventing listening in Clifford's case, and remorse for Lady Macbeth. Speaking of echoes, she calls her plan to kill the king her fell purpose. We've had fair and foul, and now fell, another word for cruel or merciless. She wants no weakness to come between her idea and its execution, trying to keep the peace between her action and its effect. So the whole thing goes, Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here. 
and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood, stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Next, she negates another part of her femininity, her breasts. Come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Now there is something a little awkward about a woman talking about her own body and having to remind us that this part of her body is female, that she says that they are woman's breasts. Perhaps this is a result of the part having been played by a man in its earliest performances. But also Lady Macbeth is here unsexing herself, so there is a logic to her calling them woman's breasts where they will be no longer required. A woman feeds her children via her breasts, but here Lady Macbeth is calling on these dark spirits to exchange her milk for gall. Milk, as discussed, has become a symbol of care and nurture and motherhood and human kindness, and she wants it replaced with gall, the bodily spirit or humour most associated with bitterness. It's a grim call to make. Some readings even suggest that Lady Macbeth is also a witch and that she's calling on these spirits to nurse from her and feed on her poison. These are murdering ministers, not mothering ministers, and in their invisible state, their sightless substances, she's calling for their help since they can be relied on when there's mischief afoot. Quite a good deal has been written about the influence of Seneca and his English translators on the development of this play. One play in particular is relevant here, and that is Seneca's version of Medea. Seneca makes much of Medea's career as a witch, and of all the unnatural things she does, consistently rejecting her womanhood, her motherhood, and any positive characteristics associated with the female. Medea is, of course, most famous for killing her own children. But she does plenty else besides. Now, we don't and may never have concrete proof that Shakespeare was ever thinking of one particular reference when he wrote something or anything he wrote. But there's a great article that makes a case for Medea hovering in the background during this speech from Lady Macbeth and indeed contrasting that while Medea is a witch, Lady Macbeth really isn't. I'll put it in the show notes and you can see if you're convinced. Meanwhile, Lady Macbeth reaches her third invocation when she cries out to night itself. Come, thick night, and pull thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry hold, hold. What she's planning will require darkness, so she cries out to thick night and begs for it to drape itself in the dunnest smoke of hell, the very murkiest possible, so that the air is thick and visibility terrible. So bad, so dark, that her sharp knife might not even see the wound it makes, so gloomy that all the gods in heaven could not see through the blanket of the dark to try to stop her. The imagination within this sentence is incredible. We go from the very intimate violence of a knife making a wound in total darkness so it's not even visible, all the way to the inhabitants of heaven trying to look down on the world but seeing nothing because the night is so thick. If we thought ambition was quick to take hold in Macbeth, it's even faster 
and more monumental in his wife. She's all but overcome in this dark reverie of Duncan's murder, and it's no accident that Shakespeare has her question it as she cries, hold, hold, almost stopping herself at the end. And right at this point, and not a moment too soon, her husband arrives. But you know very well that I'm going to keep you guessing and save their first scene together for the next episode. Thank you very much for joining me, and if you're interested to read more about Seneca, that greatest of Roman dramatists, or ornithology, there'll be links and information for both in the show notes. By now I'm sure you know by heart that you can find these and so much more on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. I'll speak to you next time.